0: Welcome to the Veridical Podcast, I'm Jax Azair. Alright, just some minor housekeeping. Some people were confused about the name. Veridical means truthful, but more importantly, it means a grounding in reality. And because the word truth has been hijacked by modern relativism, I feel reality is a more objective term and is less likely to be confused. So, that is the name of the podcast, and it will always be a major effort on mine to keep us grounded in reality. And I want to note that even subjective experiences can contribute to the atmosphere of reality. It's only when your subjective experiences are formed from something that is not coinciding with reality so if you are moved or emotionally affected by something but what you're moved or affected by is actually a lie or deception or perversion of reality well then your subjective experience is exterior of reality and is then untruthful however there are much more experienced philosophers than me that can speak into this a lot more elegantly than I, and I'll leave y'all to them. That is just my perspective and my observation thus far. And with that said, let's get into today's topic. Today I am not going to be reviewing a book. I'm going to be reading one of my papers, specifically the one I wrote on Hell, and in the last podcast on the book Heaven by Randy Alcorn, I felt I did the nature and the obstacle of speaking about hell a major disservice. And I pitched my paper, but I feel it would just be more helpful to read the paper here. And that'll give a better insight into my overall objective findings of hell, but also my personal. Perception of hell and for all of y'all that are upset with the idea of a quote personal perception of something Take a minute and realize everything you perceive everything you acknowledge is a personal observation a personal perception all you have is your mind There is nothing else helping you out here other than your mind And for y'all that think that God is doing most of the thinking for you, well, that is your mind telling you that. Everything you feel, everything you think you feel, can be attributed to your mind. Now, this isn't denouncing God or even stripping away his power. He is, in fact, the source of your mind. But I say this just so you don't get turned off by me saying my Personal observation and your anger at that and your disposition to whatever my perception is is merely your personal perception however with that said there are litmus tests that you can perform to extract reality out of subjective experience so whatever is upsetting a person or whatever is making a person joyful well you can trace it back to the event and if the event clearly happened in the matter that they are describing it, then in fact, their reaction, though subjective, is organic and real. This may sound like I'm talking in circles, or I'm just saying words to sound smart, but this is a major obstacle for a lot of people in the world today, on both sides of believer and non-believer, secular and religious alike. There is a disposition against people's experiences and understanding that will help us end a lot of pointless arguments and also help us start a lot of more meaningful ones if you are not acknowledging the perception that an individual has and just saying that their conclusion does not align with your conclusion well you are equally subjected To the possibility that you are the one misinterpreting reality right as long as two people are disagreeing one of them is closer to truth than the other and even if you are correct you have to self-check you have to be able to pass your own litmus test of reality so I feel like I've bantered long enough let's get into the paper So, the paper is titled The Composure of Hell A Qualitative Examination of the History and Doctrine of Hell. I wrote this paper in partial fulfillment of the course requirements for biblical eschatology, which we again touched on in the previous episode. And I've been very confused on hell. I have been extremely thrown off by the misadvertisements of it, the descriptions that it is given. And my confusion stemmed from confusion about heaven, the descriptors that heaven was given, and a lot of the misconceptions of life after death. And it put me on a sort of quest to uncover as much as I can. Now the unfortunate reality is, what we do know about the afterlife. In fact, the only thing we really know for certain about the afterlife is they're not allowed to come back and tell us how it's going, right? So whoever's in heaven, one thing we can say for sure about heaven is they're not allowed to come and inform us about how great or dreadful it is. Likewise, with hell, we, we don't get the privilege of having them come up and tell us, hey, This is real, and you should probably avoid coming here, That would make it very helpful. So all we have are scripture, tradition, and the third leg, which is the most neglected, in my opinion, reason. For those of y'all that don't know, many theologians and philosophers claim three legs, sometimes four, to biblical understanding. So the three main ones are reason, scripture, and tradition. Oftentimes the fourth one, experience, is put in there. And as I just said, I think reason is one of the most neglected areas of theology ever. It is painful to listen to these scholarly theologians neglect the idea of reason. So, as I stated before, this podcast will value reason to one of the highest degrees And when I was writing this paper, reason was one of my biggest motivators. And I hope you can hear that, or at least detect it to a degree, when I read this paper. And that is enough preamble. So I give you the composure of hell. Introduction For individuals who ponder the fortitude of their Christian faith, they can often daydream of the joys and wonders that will be experienced in the final heaven. They can read fun novels describing the pure blissfulness, or engage in exciting debates about the eschatological process of ushering in the final heaven. Saint Augustine wrote City of God, and Randy Alcorn wrote Heaven. Allowing believers a chance to truly imagine what the final eschaton will be like. A sector of the eschatological sequence that can many times be tempting to disregard or avoid completely is the concept and unveiling of hell. Hell has been ascribed many colorful and vibrant descriptions, such as, gnashing of teeth, eternal fire, and eternal punishment. End quote. The plight of all hope, where the true essence of helplessness is manifested in a physical location, the consistent affirmations of the existence of hell is most often echoed by Jesus himself. This paper will approach the concept of hell, the possible different descriptive locations, its purpose. The question of its reality, and the process of entering hell if it is in fact real. There are many theological outlooks that tamper with the divinity of Christ, or the inerrancy of Scripture. For the sake of this paper, the divinity of Christ and inerrancy of Scripture will be assumed to hold integrity, so this paper will only be relevant for those holding to a Protestant theological worldview. Accepting Jesus' divinity means that the concept of hell must be investigated and understood to the best degree. If hell is a metaphor, Or simply not a real location, then the divinity of Jesus is at stake. Though the divine nature of Christ may be tempting enough to embrace the notion of hell, there must be further support for its existence. Though a sacturing topic for all who claim, understanding hell and its implications is key to maintaining a proper theological worldview that incorporates utmost truth and reality." So, this is me speaking off paper here. I will be interjecting where I see fit, usually after each section, to explain a lot of the writings, and to not really summarize, but to more or less rendezvous with the information that was just discussed. So, the introduction. Um, It is basically ascribing the idea that hell is being more and more perverted, and less and less understood. Because it was an academic paper, I wasn't able to put my own experience in this section. But I'll add it here. I have always been very confused about hell. I have only been a believer for about four years now. And my first true experience with the idea came in my second year of college. I was living with two other roommates. And I asked them about... A Ouija board or something along that line, and the two of them said no that is how you can manifest demons. Right? So there's this idea that you can go in the bathroom and play Bloody Mary, and she will legitimately come out. Right? And now I wasn't immediately disposed to this. I was more naive than I currently am. And I was curious if the nature of Ouija boards was in fact real. If you could actually summon a spirit to direct a lens on a board with words. This also got me interested in the idea of crystals, and spells, and tarot cards. The idea that these people are actually interacting with spirits from the Underrealms puzzled me. I didn't believe it. And... Spoiler alert, I still mostly do not believe these things. This is not me denouncing hell, but this is me saying that a lot of these people that are worried about upcoming witchcraft, well, it's obviously blasphemous, but I don't believe it's working. Many people believe these individuals are interacting with spirits from hell. I think they are talking to dead rocks, and nothing more than that. However, back to the story. This got me really curious, and I started looking into exorcisms, and I remember what I found was very unsettling. Most of the exorcisms were performed, of course, in older times, but then were conveniently always done for profit by the Catholic Church in the earlier first millennium. But after this, it appears the demons took a hiatus and only possessed those affiliated with hyper-charismatic, alt-right conspiracy lovers. And that kind of almost dug it in for me. Now, the fact that they are rare, or hard to come by in a legitimate sense, doesn't technically disprove it, but it definitely gives me a major disposition for them. And this got me even more confused, right? Because I want to get to the bottom of it. Demons, and ultimately their habitat, hell, became extremely suspect to me. And I didn't fall for the typical questions such as, well, hell can't exist because God would be too loving. That was just a non sequitur for me. The idea that God sends individuals to hell never quite sat right with me. However, the idea that individuals go where they are best suited for sat very easily with me. So, to carry on, my trail of investigating demons and demonic-affiliated merchandise led me ultimately to questioning hell, and for the longest time I denounced it completely. However, I knew that I was making that purely out of emotion, and ultimately stemming from my findings of demonic possession, so I knew I had to get to the bottom of it. And eschatology class and the ability to choose a topic of my choice made it very possible. So, I doubt any of my other diverges will take this long. And with that said, back to the paper. Origins and Brief History Though it holds many terms, the word hell is a word that resonates rather harshly with the modern world among believers and unbelievers alike. The term itself is in Anglo-Saxon, and may even be of Norse origins. The translation is from the old Germanic populations, who are translating Helia, Helan, or Hel, which mean the covered, or hidden place. Due to the geographic location of the term, it was adopted into the King James Bibles, and is where the English speakers get the word hell today. Hell can sometimes be misunderstood to be the umbrella term for Sheol. Or Hades. Sheol would consume the word Hades later on in an effort to leave Greek mythology. People often mistake it as an umbrella term for Gehenna as well. Though these three terms all have implications of a resting place for the damned, they are not synonymous. Sheol and Hades are moderately replaceable, but have different eschatological values when compared to hell. This will be discussed later. Hell can be traced back to the Old Testament, and assuming a Protestant theological worldview, is eternal in its continuum precisely because hell is eternal in its continuum does not mean it is static or that it has been present from the beginning or infinite this is key when regarding the origins of hell many believe that an entity with an infinite continuum must also be infinite in its origins this is simply a misunderstanding of metaphysics the universe as far as modern string theory and metaphysics predict will be infinite in its continuum but most modern scientists will concur That the Big Bang was the origin, and therefore, it is not static in nature. I'm going to pause here, because there can often be misunderstandings of what I'm trying to convey. To simplify it, the universe does have a finite beginning. At least that is what we have all concurred uh, at the point of the Big Bang. However, a finite initiation does not mean it will always have a finite end. So, the universe, the universe that we currently live in, will probably go on forever and ever. However, it did have a starting point. So, imagine a two-dimensional plane, spelled P-L-A-I-N, and there is a line, and it stretches all the way back past the negative point, and continues on, and it continues on infinitely into the positive direction. Allow the line to represent our known universe, and the distance being traversed on this plane is time. Well, this is the misconception. That it goes infinitely back in time. That no matter how far back in time you go, you'll find traces of the universe. This is not the case, right? Time was created at the origins of the universe, and the universe did have a finite beginning. So, the moment you get to there being no time, will mean the moment you get to the origin of the universe. However, it does continue in the infinite direction in the positive spectrum, so infinitely existing. I believe hell is the same way, right? So it it doesn't have what is called a static existence, meaning infinite in history. However, it does hold an infinite continuum. So with that word salad done, we will continue. Determining the origins of hell must be done with pure reason and philosophy, as its origins are not mentioned or described in Scripture. For that sake, some statements regarding the nature of hell are rather fluid and subject, though unlikely, to change. Contemporary and Reformed theology alike describe there being two states of hell, the present or intermediate state of hell and the final hell. The final hell is established after the second coming of Christ, and most likely does not currently exist. For its origin, in regards to the Old Testament, hell will be referred to as what the Israelite Jews would describe it, Sheol. According to the creation myth, the serpent deceived Eve in the garden, in Genesis chapter 3 verse 4. Assuming that though the snake, later revealed to be Satan himself, deceived Eve was capable of conscious thought and reason, it can be assumed that this was sinful in nature, and freely decided to deceive the human couple. If it is assumed that the serpent and its actions were orchestrated by God, that would imply God directed the fall, which is against his nature. The question is whether the snake can be held accountable. But its cunningness and force against God show it had deviated from its original soul blueprint. This means that free will existed within the serpent, which means there was already living beings living apart from God. This line of reason can pin the creation of Sheol between the creation of matter and the creation of the human soul. According to Protestant theology, And simply according to scripture, hell is a physical realm, with material aspects. This means its origins can confidently be placed after the Big Bang, but before Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Next part. The Original Fall. Not much is known of the state of the universe before Genesis 1, verse 26. All that is known is there was a void. God was eternal, and he began creating. The stretches of the cosmos to the individual structure of the atom there is much debate about the story of Genesis, particularly chapters 1-11. through This debate need not be addressed to make the following assumptions. Snakes or serpents are not the origins of Satan, for the Bible later reveals he is a fallen angel in Isaiah chapter 14. For those taking a literal reading of the creation account, they must accept that the snake was merely a vehicle for Satan. As previously mentioned, it would be counterintuitive of God to create a being and orchestrate its own fall. Granted, it is possible, and human logic just simply cannot account for such a clearly destructive action. The most sense is found in attributing free will to Satan, and thus to all the angels. There is a lot of conflict regarding the existence of free will, but the Lexham survey of theology puts it well by stating, the will of man is a necessary presupposition for the doctrine of sin, and of man's responsibility for sin. It is only because humans have a will, because they are the author of their own actions, that they can be held responsible, and can in fact sin in the first place. But this context only places the capacity of free will to man. Though the direction of implying free will from the document is towards man, it is safe to also translate this exact idea to that of angels, as it is the best explanation for their own fall. With the notion of free will implied to angels, and the existence of a fallen angel in the creation story, the creation of Sheol, present or intermediate hell, can be asserted confidently to the exact moment of the fall of Lucifer, the name of Satan before his fall. Jonathan Edwards believes, and this is speculation, that right before or right after the creation of mankind, God was appointing entities to have dominion over man, but sought that the leader shall be of human condition. Thus, God appointed Christ to be the head of humanity, and Lucifer simply could not bear not being in charge, thus inciting a rebellion. A further biography of Satan will be examined later. God cannot coexist with things that are unholy. This is not a weakness of God, but essential for holiness to maintain its strongest characteristics. Therefore, the moment that unholiness existed, a location to quarantine it was needed, most likely explaining the origins of Sheol. One may ponder if the possibility of unholiness is equivalent to the act of unholiness. This is not the case, as the possibility of unholiness is tied directly to the instillment of free will, which is the prerequisite for the strongest form of love, a chosen love. Sheol did not always hold a negative connotation. It was rather neutral. It was believed to be the place of the dead, where all dead people go. The Jews clearly held to a belief of soul contingency and not annihilation. Later Jewish prophets such as Isaiah spoke of the wicked enduring a fire, that shall not be quenched, but also of God speaking of worship, rejoicing, and a new heaven in the same chapter and dialogue. This is Isaiah chapter 66. This shows that the Jews at the time identified two separate realms, one for good and another for evil. Throughout the Old Testament, the term Sheol is used both neutrally and negatively, but the context around such uses always reveals its intended implications. The next part is titled, Hell in the Scriptures. Subtitle, Literary Theory The Christian scriptures are marinated in discourse and warnings about the realm of hell. As is commonly known, there are many different writing formats in the world of literature, but also in the Bible. The 66 books in the Bible are composed of many different authors, time periods, audience demographics, and conditions. The writing style that an author in the Bible incorporates for a document determines how the audience and the modern interpreter should read and receive it. The philosophy of literary theory, which comprises a lot more modern techniques for more modern documents in regards to the Bible, can more or less be summed up by practicing hermeneutics. Kevin Van Hooser, a research professor and theologian at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, or TEDS, writes about the importance of authority and authorship. All mentions of hell in scripture, as recalled, will be taken to be an inerrant for this paper, can be regarded as authoritative but authoritative does not always equate to reality. One can be authoritative and poetic, as seen in the words of Christ himself. When Christ speaks of allegory or hyperbole, his conclusions do not always depict reality, rather an abstract concept of it. Though the integrity is preserved, the Bible clearly allows the authorship and literary format of its author to shine. Van Hooser explains, The more the interpreter wanders from the author's mind, the more he or she deviates from the author's purpose, End quote. Van Hooser harkens back to Calvin and his perspective as a Renaissance humanist. These were individuals who held a strong philosophy of unearthing the mind of the author. This laid a grave importance on the studies of reason and philosophy because it helped solidify an approach that was not literalist in nature. Van Hooser explains that the author holds a sort of authority and is the sovereign subject of the sign, The author gives value to words and ascribes meaning, therefore the authority must be undone to unveil what biases and implications the author may be subliminally striving for. When reading different authors' writings of hell, interpreters should look back into the mind of the author, their upbringing, and intentionality behind the doctrine. This can reveal whether descriptions about hell should be literal or allegorical, whether time spent there is temporal or eternal, and whether emotions endured are accurate descriptives. There are far too many different authors and occasions that mention Hell, or its preceding terms, Sheol and Hades, names that will be examined later regarding different meanings, to exegete all mentions. So a few select authors and occasions will be used. Jesus and the Gospels of Matthew, 2nd Peter, and 2nd Thessalonians. These passages were selected because they all have a different author, a different audience, and a different tone. What would be important to conclude is that despite the various times, authors and audiences, Will the descriptions of hell help nail down a legitimate understanding and biography of its composure? Next part is hell in the Gospel of Matthew, Second Peter, and Second Thessalonians. Firstly, is Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew? Jesus warns of the coming hellfires more than any other apostle or Old Testament prophet. In his Olivet discourse, Jesus spoke directly to his disciples with no one else present. Jesus hearkens back to Isaiah 2 and 11 which hold heavy eschatological foretellings. With no one present but the disciples, one would be led to believe that Jesus is instructing them how to continue without him, giving preaching notes as a contingency plan. But rather, Jesus speaks directly to them, as if trying to make sure that the disciples not only remember his message, but the message resonating internally with them. This is seen in Matthew 25. In these verses, hell is not prescribed for arrogance or lack of information. Hell is a response to neglecting, in quote, then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. It continues on. That is Matthew chapter 25, verse 41-42. The image of God, Imago Dei, is within each believer. And Jesus is instructing that the consequence for neglecting the least of these is hell. At first hearing, it may sound like God's wrath on these neglectful individuals is purely in the name of vindictive justice, but there is much more to be unearthed. All of humanity is guilty of neglect, including the least of these. So hell is not being distributed on the basis of neglect alone. Jesus is laying an incentive to treat and address others that bear his image, rather than expounding on the entire systematic theological implications of hell. What will set apart the neglectful passerbys from Matthew 25 Will be the lack of belief, and the lack of belief will be seen in a tangible, consistent lack of regard for the least of these. Jesus also affirms the Jewish-held ancient belief that hell is eternal. The Jewish affirmations can be read in Isaiah 66 and affirmed by Jesus in Matthew 3. The presupposed divinity of Jesus helps equate hell to being just, eternal, appropriate, lonely, painful, tormenting, punishing, and cosmic. Still. Utilizing literary theory, it is important to examine the descriptive language that Jesus used. Biblical literalists run a dangerous philosophy of assuming that God relating to humanity is a direct translation to cosmic reality. With the human mind being a finite entity, it is plausible to assume that God is putting cosmic realities into graspable terms for finite minds. Terms like fire, gnashing of teeth, or darkness can be plausibly assumed to be discomforting but relatable ideas for ancient and modern humans. As the Baker Encyclopedia of the Bible expresses, there are many different interpretations of hell, but one can only dogmatically say that it is eternal, unending, and that the doom of souls does not cease. The descriptive language in regards to eternity could only help an Israelite relate to a time frame, but Israelites were well aware of time passing. So Christ, expressing hell as eternal and unquenchable, could not mean any other chronological sequence other than an eternal span of time itself. Moving to the dissection of Peter's use of hell, there is a much larger and broader mention of hell. In 2 Peter 2, verse 4, Peter contextualizes God's dedication to creation. Though the ensuing verses are not directed at the subject of hell, the mere mention of it helps to paint the picture. Peter says, in quotes, continued, God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains. In parentheses, some manuscripts say pits. That is 2 Peter 2, verse 4. Peter then espoused the concept of God saving the righteous. Peter is addressing fellow believers, so this passage is meant to be an encouragement. But no one can ignore the references Peter makes to many Old Testament stories, such as the global flood or Sodom and Gomorrah. The validity of whether a global flood truly happened or not need not be factored in to calculate Peter's depictions of hell. It appears there are two acts regarding God's judgment. First, the angels are judged and utterly punished. Second, they are cast into eternity in hell. Charles Spurgeon, in his commentary on Second Peter, writes of three wonders or themes to be taken from this. First, a wonder of wickedness. Angels sin. Those closest to God, who are his supposed loyal servants, are even capable of diverging. Second, A wonder of punishment. The angels are cast into hell. Whether it be pits or chains, the angels are subjected to whatever torment hell entails. This also means for humanity that hell is not just the worst agony that a human could endure, but even more than what an angel could endure. Lastly, a wonder of future vengeance. The angels supposedly had their spots reserved in hell. For Spurgeon, one who subscribed to predestination theology, This could be a wonder of judgment regardless. The main idea to keep in mind with regards to this wonder is that God is just. Therefore, these sentences cannot be given a negative connotation, no matter how ruthless or hostile they might appear. As far as the idea of hell is concerned, Peter helps reveal the availability of this innocent faith. Recall literary theory and consider the audience. Peter is speaking to churches, an audience that already believes in the works of Christ. Peter is not trying to give details about hell. Recall the, quote, committed them to chains or pits, end quote. Peter is revealing that angels, even those that are sometimes commissioned by the king of kings with tasks, can fall. With the passage from 2 Peter, it is denotable that no one but Christ himself is exempt from hell. The final scripture to examine to extrapolate information of hell is 2 Thessalonians. In this book, there is yet another new author, offering another personality and another deposit of context of hell. Paul, one who lived in what seemed to be a perpetual state of sin until Christ and the Holy Spirit overcame him in a psychologically violent revelation, is the author of this book. Paul is writing to the church of Thessalonica, and one is left to believe that the church was in some state of debauchery, for he immediately opens with a heavy emphasis on God's judgment. In the passage, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 5-9, through 9, Significant additions are piled into the anatomy of hell. In this passage, the nature of agony is truly unveiled. It is God's direct affliction, his wrath, his punishment onto the unrighteous. This will also be addressed later. Initially, it may seem that God is being unreasonable and using some barbaric, pagan, eye-for-an-eye judiciary system. Verse 6 states, Since indeed God considers it just to repay with afflictions those who afflict you. This is seen in uh, chapter 1 verse 6. Leon Morris, a highly esteemed theologian, wrote about this letter. He points out that the word repay is translated from antitope This word means to pay back. Though this seems like an eye for an eye repayment, it should be viewed from the lens of giving back what is owed. Because God is an infinite being, and any trespass against him should not be measured on a human scale, but rather a cosmic and divine scale. Therefore, any trespass is of cosmic value and deserves cosmic justice. The sentencing, though eternal, is due in relation to the transgression. Paul builds with a point being made by Christ in the previous covered passage of Matthew 25, that hell is not what is owed for sinners causing affliction, because the Bible clearly teaches that the sin of afflicting is covered by Christ's death. There is an underlying assumption that those afflicting the church of Thessalonica are unbelievers, as they are persecuting followers of Jesus. Ultimately, it is their unbelief in Christ that will grant them the just punishment of hell. Verses later, there appear to be a contradiction that God will be, in quote, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God, end quote, while the punishment is carried out in a state of, quote, eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord, end quote. It is perplexing how the punishment is executed by the Lord while also being away from the Lord. To address this, simple philosophy is employed. One need not be present to inflict judgment or punishment. It is possible that an entity, especially God, can execute an action while being absent. Leon Morris points out that Paul, attributing this judgment coming from the Lord, is an attribute only associated with divinity. This helps establish the already presupposed for this paper, divinity of Christ. Morris goes on to explain the equality and justness of this sentencing. As pointed out earlier, the sinners are, quote, repaying what is owed by repaying the penalty. Morris states in quote, it is not a mindless infliction of vindictive punishment but the meting out of merited desert. Morris addresses further the eternal state of hell in this passage. Though previously established, it is beneficial to building the anatomy of hell from multiple passages. Verse 9 uses the word eternal and destruction. Eternal is a self-explaining idea, but destruction can oftentimes be attributed to a heretical view of eschatological judgment, that view being the philosophy of annihilationism. Annihilationism will be extrapolated later, but generally believes that consciousness is lost if found unrighteous. In the passage, Paul makes clear that hell is endured, not experienced briefly. Alright, I'm gonna pause there, because that was a lot. So let me kind of break that all down real quick. What just happened was an analysis of three different authors' discussion of hell, right? So, so three different authors in three different time periods, all talking about the same concept, even in different tones, right? Some of them are encouraging and others are condemning. So what these do is combine what is generally agreed upon as reliable testimonies from reliable individuals describing the place of hell and I can't exactly count how many times I have heard these verses weaponized right oh you just neglect the poor and you go to hell well as you hopefully heard from the paper that is not what is being conveyed And this is why it's important to use hermeneutics. If you accept a literal face value translation of the Bible, you will take from that that if you don't give to the poor, you will go to hell. This is just a clear indication that that is too dangerous of a reading. Anyone who proudly boasts about their literal interpretation of scripture, well, you Are doing the most liberal thing to your scripture you are setting it free from its original purpose now as I stated in the introduction to this podcast there is an objective truth and an objective reality that is possible for us to ascertain from everything even if it's not done in our lifetime even if it's done by someone else Even if we, as a species, all collectively decide that reality is subjective, the objective reality will continue and leave us in the dirt. This is true for Scripture. Even if we never truly uncover its original intended meaning, that does not mean it will not exist. And you, proudly taking Scripture... Literally, where it's clearly meant to be taken in a different sense, whether it's obvious use of hyperbole, whether it's the apocalyptic writing style of Revelation, or the poetic writing style of Psalms and Proverbs, you are barring yourself from the most organic potential reading of Scripture. Now, I can feel myself diverging too far here, so I'll ring it back by saying... Using the leg of reason and the reliability of Scripture from these three passages We've been able to obtain Continual realities of hell right the things that overlap from these passages is how we build our case right think of a Venn diagram, but with three circles well these three circles all overlap in the middle And those are the things that we can confidently say are aspects of hell. Now, this doesn't mean that the things Jesus said that Paul and others didn't are not true about hell, but it gets more and more reliable the further into the Venn diagram you go. Many people may bark back by saying, I'm saying that Jesus' words are unreliable unless affirmed by other authors. That is not what I'm saying, but we are trying to navigate through rough waters of different writing styles to nail down the organic chemistry of hell, right? Jesus wasn't always trying to give a piece-by-piece description of it. Likewise, God, talking to Moses, wasn't giving a piece-by-piece overview of the creation of the universe, right? So... I hope that is understood and we will continue with the paper these three passages help to build the composure of hell it is a place of eternal unpleasant and agonizing experiences physical and spiritual it is the realm that is reserved for satan and the angels he convinced to follow him it is a moral sentencing by god but also self-inflicted by the sinner god will not judge on ignorance but based on the capacity of the sinner to know God, it can be safely asserted that no one will go to hell and be able to honestly mutter, in quotes, I do not deserve this, end quote. There are still more deductions to be made of hell, but so far, the scriptures present humanity with a rough outline of the experience and prerequisites. Next section, false advertisements of hell. Subtitle, pop culture's perception of hell. As many are well aware, the world has more easily embraced the notion of hell and Satan, as opposed to God and heaven in the culture, but when it comes to genuine beliefs, more quickly believed in heaven and rejected belief in hell. The concept of evil is significantly easier to identify than good. It is also what sells the most in the media. The concept of school shootings, suicide bombings, and rapes are a lot more intriguing to a viewer than charity donations, peace contracts, and volunteer work. This makes the concept of Hell and Satan more easily grafted into common pop culture. Shows and movies such as Lucifer, The Conjuring, Dante's Inferno, and others all take a swing at having a semi-correct theology of Hell. Yet all have fallen short. Dante's Inferno will be addressed later. Horror movies depicting Hell have often led individuals to holding beliefs about Hell that are significantly skewed. Everyone is well aware that Satan is in fact not a giant red-horned creature with a pitchfork. But it has not ceased being his appointed caricature. Pop culture is one of the largest contributors to a fear of hell, rightfully so, while also creating a famine of proper doctrine. There is no way to measure what aspect of false advertising regarding hell ultimately dilute its veracity of impact. Pew research exposes for one reason or another belief in hell is less common among those that maintain beliefs in heaven or any other spiritual beliefs in general. 73% of all US adults believe in heaven No proper description of heaven was given, while only 62% believe in hell. Many things can factor into one having a denial of hell while still believing in an afterlife or heaven, losing loved ones that did not believe in the deity who orchestrates the environment of hell, and living in denial, the lack of confidence that a loving God could send individuals to hell, or fear of going to hell themselves. What is made abundantly transparent by Pew is that the philosophies of the afterlife are not orthodox to any degree. Of the individuals who believe in heaven, 15% believe that they can enact their own annihilation. The pupils revealed that many people within the culture have absorbed distorted or incredulous depictions of hell and eschatology as a whole. One of the biggest contributors to the false advertising of hell stems from a sympathetic Catholic depiction, that of Dante's Inferno, or D.I. D.I. depicts hell as a nine-tier system, with each descending tier increasing in agony and torment. Different tiers correlate with an appropriate punishment for the transgression. Satanly supposedly dwells within all nine of the layers. While being a finite being, one supposes he chooses a layer day by day to venture to. Upon the gate of the inferno is a plaque that reads, Abandon hope, all ye who enter here. Dante explains that the first five layers constitute upper hell, while the more torturous ones are lower hell. Dante incorporates Greco-Roman mythology into his depiction, by depicting the river Styx to be the divider of the two hell sections. The incorporations of pagan mythology should be enough weight to prove that Dante clearly did not intend this to be a literal representation of hell, yet it continues to hold some of the heaviest weight among believers. There is much more to Di, but it can be reduced ultimately to a false advertisement of hell that takes an effect on the culture's reception to doctrine. Next part, hateful churches. Hateful churches or individuals who hold unorthodox degrees of hatred—in parentheses, any degree of hatred is unorthodox—and tend to weaponize hell in a way that misrepresents its true doctrine. In an effort to maintain loyalty to the topics at hand, no critique of churches' doctrines will be conducted, though these may lead to more unearthing of false teachings regarding hell. Rather, the weaponization of hell by individuals and/or the church will be analyzed. A notorious example of the weaponization of hell is conducted by the infamous Westboro Baptist Church, or WBC, located in Topeka, Kansas. WBC is known for ugsome protest signs and chants. They can often be found praising the death of soldiers, or claiming that God did indeed send a shooter to Sandy Hook Elementary to judge the parents of the victims. On their website, they boast of conducting a total of 70,524 protests in over a thousand cities since 1991. Though WBC may be one of the most popular churches, who boast in its hostility, there is no doubt that churches may oftentimes carry similar undertones. For sake of simplicity, this paper will primarily focus the depictions of hell, or rather, the use of hell, by WBC, and not address their other doctrines, though they are abhorrent and deserve their own paper. WBC oddly grasps the idea of God's grace on paper, but fails to see it implemented in other image bearers. Recall earlier. Matthew 25 in the apparent sentencing of neglectful individuals to hell, it is not until a proper exegesis is conducted to see that the neglectfulness is not the dependent variable, but rather the lack of faith in Christ. If neglectfulness cannot damn someone to hell, then across the board Orthodox Christianity teaches that neither can any sin, for that is the exact reason for the atonement. WBC fails to see this, and though they adamantly address sin within the culture, they equate the life of sin to an eternity in hell, while hardly ever preaching the legitimate gospel. WBC proudly states in their explanation for holding the Calvinist tulip model that God's grace is not infinite, and Jesus does, in fact, not love everyone. They say, end quote, Though the awful, destructive, sin encouraging lies that God loves everyone and Jesus died for everyone are being taught from nearly every pulpit in this generation, continued, end quote, an insight to how they view hell can be deducted from how they view the gospel. Common verses such as Romans 5.8 and John 3.16, even when taken in a properly contextualized form, clearly explains that God desires all of his creation to see fruition. WBCs and other churches that may hold subliminally similar views, portrayal of hell as a weapon used by God in a joyful manner is contributing to many false understandings of hell. The US court's website regarding the lawsuit with WBC provides evidence of the false portrayals of hell that WBC subscribes to. The court case involved a soldier passing away, and WBC picketed the funeral with vulgar signs. In court, they defended that God is punishing America and its military for allowing homosexuality. This means to WBC that the natural orders are anything but natural that all harmful events such as hurricanes and earthquakes are God executing divine judgment similar to that of Sodom and Gomorrah. It only follows that this belief holds that God can happily damn the victims to hell. It is understandable to remain curious if the current cyber attacks on WBC are also being orchestrated by God. People await a response from the church on this matter. The teachings of WBC and similar churches actively contribute to the massive false advertisements of hell. The more that hell is falsely advertised, the more it gets mischanneled fears and concerns. Though hell warrants a deep degree of understanding, and the forces of evil certainly need to be taken seriously, any misrepresentation of an entity must be corrected. And the theological malfunctions that can be caused by these massive false advertisements can be catastrophic in one's biblical worldview, not to mention the damages done if they adopt an approach similar to WBC's. Next subtitle is Running From, Not To. The philosophy of using hell as a scare tactic will be briefly covered. For though hell is scary and should be taken seriously, using it to scare individuals into belief in Christ can cause the true doctrine of hell to be compromised, at the expense of the sanity of the individual, no less. The institution of WBC is a major culprit, but in this section of the paper, the individual philosophy that often bleeds into families. Will be addressed. One must hold a strong eschatological understanding of hell in order to truly dismantle this issue. All too often, parents or church leaders will use the agony of hell as an influence or warning in order to scare a subject into belief in Christ. This pattern leads to an image of God that Martin Luther held when he was younger and studying the Erfurt. Luther would walk past a statue of Jesus that was oddly frightening to him. Jesus had a sword in his mouth. And a very harsh stare. Though the statement, repent or perish, is technically theologically sound, this common saying without context can lead to a view of God that is akin to a cosmic psychopath. Using hell as a scare tactic can be summarized by saying, in quote, worship God and love him or he will burn you forever, end quote. The problem with this philosophy is it begins the gospel on the basis of a threat. Before knowing more context of hell, Understanding the nature of heaven provides formidable reasons to run towards heaven and not run from hell. Randy Alcorn and others like him have pioneered the use of imagination, exegesis, and systematic theology to establish a strong understanding of the nature of heaven for modern-day readers. Similarly to the false advertising of hell leading to incorrect doctrine, the false advertising of heaven has induced a similar effect. Incorrect understandings of heaven lead others to believe that some aspect of human life, outside of genuine faith in Christ, can save them. This incorrect soteriology can lead to some strange conceptions. Reflecting on the Pew research examined earlier, of the 73% of Americans who believed in heaven, 43% believe that they can become angels, 25% believe that they can have relationships with individuals still on earth. If this is still possible, one is left perplexed why they have not been contacted by their ancestors to confirm that heaven is in fact real. And 15%, as noted earlier, believe that they can enact their own annihilation, even while in heaven. This view on heaven is rather self-serving, as opposed to Christ-serving. The purpose of getting to heaven is not to satisfy one's own desires, but to faithfully be united with the creator of the cosmos, and to serve faithfully forever into the eschaton, One should not lose hope, and it is safe to view heaven as compensation for trials on earth. Surely, heaven, as the scripture entails, will be of cosmic happiness and joys, but one should look back to the king of heaven as the reason to desire it, not the personal satisfactions. Granted, there are nuances, and Christ will be glorified through people experiencing joy, but the nuances are mere semantics. Alistair McGrath writes about heaven in his systematic theology book. He states, in quote, The Christian conception of heaven is essentially that of the eschatological realization of the presence and power of God, and the final elimination of sin. The most helpful way of considering it is to regard it as a consumption of the Christian doctrine of salvation, in which the presence, penalty, and power of sin have all been finally eliminated, and the total presence of God in individuals and the community of faith has been achieved." McGrath closes with discussing the beatific vision, the final granting of full vision of the God of the cosmos. Dante's Divine Comedy also taps into the beatific vision. Reflecting on Dante's false advertisement of hell, any true descriptions of the appearance of God should not be taken literally. But the ontological fact that there will be a vision of God is supported in Scripture. McGrath closes by stating, in quotes, Christian theology can never fully capture the vision of God, but it can at least challenge us to think more deeply about God, End quote. The beatific vision places the value of heaven on its ruler, God himself. The perpetual relating to heaven as a permanent vacation for believers to enjoy riches, without acknowledging the Godhead, serves to skew notions of its true nature. Likewise, with hell, it is portrayed more as a torture chamber, one of agony and despair, and though these are attested to be by Christ Himself and His Apostles, there are deeper characteristics of hell to be acknowledged. There are key verses that point out the true aspects of hell, that truly expose its most horrifying characteristics the revelation of the abandonment of God. Second Thessalonians chapter one, verse nine, expresses that the damned are, in quote, shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might, end quote. And in reading Matthew twenty five from earlier, Christ states that the damned will be ordered to depart from the presence of the Lord. These verses express an absence of the presence of the Lord. By implementing literary theory from earlier, it is realized that the authors and speakers from these verses are not stating a literal absence of God. Rather, in reviewing their audiences, their tone, their warnings, and their intentions of writing, it is clear that they are noting that the relationship with God will be absent. To elaborate. The word presence, in 2 Thessalonians 1.9, is translated from the Greek word prosopon, which is also translated, most of the time, to face. Therefore, the Lord is present, but has ceased a relationship. His face no longer shines upon them. This aligns with the theological view that the Lord is omnipresent. This realization also bridges the supposed contradiction that the Lord is not present, yet is able to dispose his wrath continuously upon the damned. Though one need not be present in order to inflict punishment, the Bible expresses that the punishment comes from the Lord himself. It is his wrath, therefore necessitating a presence to some degree. In regards to this section's topic of running to heaven and not running from hell, the knowledge of the purpose of heaven helps to create an emphasis on the Lord, and not just the human experience. Using a philosophical approach, if one is running from hell, that implies a belief in hell, which then implies a belief in the nature of hell, being the enduring of the wrath of God. This means the person believes in the wrath of God, implying that they believe in God. Following this, they must believe in a dwelling place of God, being the final heaven on the redeemed earth, containing the glorious beatific vision. This also requires a belief of the work of Christ and the substitutionary atonement, Millard Erickson, in his Introducing Christian Doctrine, believes more angles of God's love. Understanding these angles gives greater inclination to run to heaven and not run from hell. He explains that though the reason for God creating humanity is unknown, he clearly desires humans to flourish and has created them so. Erickson emphasizes God's plan and actions towards redeeming the race and providing the necessary means for salvation in his own son. On a side note, The idea of God creating humans from the dirt can imply they were created mortals, destined to die. But God still provides a means for eternal life. This is me speaking off paper here. So, just real quick, what I just mentioned um, about humans being created from the dirt, implying that they were mortal and destined to die, is not heretical. And if you think humans were created already invincible to a degree what was the meaning of the tree of life why was it there right so a lot of people and myself included believe that the tree of life was there to sustain them forever right as long as they ate from the land of eden they they would live forever and i think this is theologically sound as it places a reliance on god right you can be sinless and still rely on things to sustain you Right? And death, apart from God, is not immoral, right? So, that is my belief. I'm certainly open to discussing it. And uh, with that, I will return to the paper. God clearly desires the prosperity of his creation and is concerned for their welfare. Ultimately, this is the purest form of love, as it is defined by God. The substitutionary atonement of Christ is often the ground zero for moral theological debates, An infinite sin requires an infinite punishment, and many may contest the philosophy of inherited sin, that Adam cursed all humanity. But one cannot believe in the doctrine of original sin and still be guilty, for any sin against God, all sin is against God, is worthy of punishment. It would be unjust for God to allow an infinite transgression to go unaddressed. Therefore, a plan was executed by God, sacrificing his only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, in humanity's place. This is known as the atonement. There are many theories for the purpose and nuances of the atonement, but the most theologically grounded theory is that of compensation for God. Erickson expounds on this theory. Humanity must restore to God what humanity has taken. Furthermore, restoring what is taken does not suffice, and compensation must be given for the trespass. Erickson states, quoting Anselm, God's violated honor can be put right again, either by his punishing humans or by accepting satisfaction made on their behalf." End quote. Humans are incapable of satisfying God on their own behalf, and therefore the death of Christ must be the only suitable sacrifice. This realization of the Easter story can change the whole dynamic of the value of heaven, since it is the dwelling place of the entity that executed this love story. The running from hell neglects the value of heaven, and is often the result of weaponized fear in lieu of famishing the love of christ the next section is titled purpose of hell subtitle response to sin the atonement of christ outlines an essential aspect to the nature of hell that is hell is the only possible and just response to infinite transgression by accepting christ as one's own personal lord and savior the death of christ is then substituted in their place and they receive the gift of eternal life, and will experience the eschaton in heaven. Hell serves as a punishment, but also the only possible answer to sin. Earlier, it was established that despite many depictions of hell, it is clear that it is agonizing, lonely, despairing, but most importantly, it is eternal. It is the characteristic that hell is eternal that gestates much controversy. This controversy usually stems from individuals viewing their sins from a finite perspective, measurable by human degrees. Thomas Aquinas in Summa Theologica responds to the question of it by divine justice that eternal punishment is enacted on the damned. In his response, he outlines the reasoning for eternal sentencing. Aquinas states, in quotes, They sinned against an eternal God by despising eternal life, end quote. He follows with postulating that sin is the will of the individual that manifested the deed, stating, in quotes, He who falls into mortal sin of his own will put himself in a state whence he cannot be rescued, end quote. If hell was not eternal, then it would not be just, which would go directly against God's nature, who is perfectly just. Erickson mentioned earlier, gives more context. On the accusation that God is divinely hypocritical, Erickson claims that God is not the only one wronged by sin. But the whole social construct he established is, he is more than a single entity. God is the author of all material, but also all the immaterial concepts, the philosophies, mathematics, numbers, and anything abstract is authored and made logical by God. Morality and the fair justice of morality is also authored by God. If God did not respond to sin in the nature he does, the entire moral code would be contradicted and destroyed. Next title is, Giving the Damned Over to Their Desires. As established in the literary theory section, It is ultimately the unbelief in God that gives sinners over to eternity in hell. There is a further contextualization to hell that must be made. That it is mere disbelief stems from nature of sin, and the nature of sin, inherited or not, is bent against God. Humanity is actively in rebellion to what God truly had destined for it. The previously covered atonement sought to reconcile the original plan in which humanity now exists in a state of common grace, anxiously awaiting the return of Christ, the commencement of eternity. Until then, humans exist in a partially separated state from God. Humans, until the final reconciliation, exist in a sinful nature. The debate over free will need not apply to this dilemma. The question is not whether humans have free will or not, but even granting free will, can humans act out of their nature, and the evidence generated by human history declares a resounding no. An example of this predicament can be seen in the life of Akshita. The cheetah can choose what prey to eat, what tree to climb, and where to drink, but the cheetah will never be able to choose veganism. The cheetah is forever stuck in a state of carnivorism. Whether humans have free will or not does not obscure the value, let alone the necessity of God's infinite grace. There is a philosophical dilemma observed regarding skeptics and unbelievers regarding the existence of God. Many claim that if Jesus revealed himself, they would devote their lives unapologetically to him. Though some rather cynical Christians are quick to deny this, there is no reason to doubt this claim. The God in the Old Testament narratives does provide some context to the unbeliever's claim, however. Beginning in the Exodus story, the Israelites witnessed the ten plagues, all miracles clearly performed by Yahweh. After their escape, they walked through a parted Red Sea and watched their pursuers get eradicated by the waves. Then... After watching Moses go to the top of a mountain for forty days and deliberate with God on their behalf, they wandered the desert aimlessly, guided by a literal pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day. These Israelites had no reason to doubt the existence of God, yet they actively rebelled against Him, even during these natural phenomena. Can one confidently attribute that the Israelites were lacking a sense of conviction and the existence of God was not enough to persuade them? In regard to unbelievers today, there is no real way to determine if someone genuinely needs a natural intercession, or if it is deep-rooted denial. That being said, Romans 1:20 states, in quotes, "For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made; so they are without excuse." John chapter 1 verse 14 states, "And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory." glory is one of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. These verses do counter the previous claim and add a firmament of responsibility on the unbeliever. Therefore, with the knowledge of free will, even within the nature of humanity, the prerequisites of entering hell, the purpose of hell, and ultimately God's justice, it can be confidently asserted that those in hell desired the life of sin over the following of God. God, by nature, cannot have a skewed understanding, as he is the author of all abstract ideas, including morality and justice. Grasping this philosophy, it is impossible to say that God incorrectly sentences someone to hell. The damned, according to the integrity of God, desired sin over faithfulness. The word unbelief is translated from two Greek words, disobedience and distrust. Hell is not a sentencing for ignorance, but rebellion. Thomas Aquinas writes on whether the damned, quote, hate God, and writes, quote, Accordingly, a person may hate God, not in himself, but by reason of his effects. Therefore, the damned, perceiving God in his punishment, which is the effect of his justice, hate him, even as they hate the punishment inflicted on them, end quote. Thomas wrote that due to the controversy that because of God's greatness, it is literally impossible to hate him. However, this is widely disputed but there are good grounds to say that the damned are actively hating God from one angle or another. Aquinas writes about whether or not the damned will wish others in heaven to join them in agony. He writes, quote, The saints will rejoice in all goods, so will the damned grieve for all goods. Consequently, the sight of the happiness of the saints will give them the very great pain. Therefore, they will wish that all the good were damned, end quote. If true, this would prove that in their core, the damned embrace a sinful nature, though all humans have this nature, the damned embrace it in a particular ambiguity. The next section is titled, The Gehenna Paradox. With the nature of hell being a depressing subject, even though it is technically the correct execution of God's divine judgment, many are tempted to explain away the doctrine of hell, while maintaining a belief in Christianity, or some other ethereal belief. Recall the Pew research from earlier, Many who claim the existence of heaven actively deny the existence of hell. The movement away from the doctrine of hell has sprouted various explanations in an attempt to maintain orthodoxy. One example is pointing out that the word hell, as mentioned in the introductions, originates from Icelandic or Anglo-Saxon regions, long after the first manuscripts were written. Jesus never actually says hell. Rather, he says Gehenna, which is Yehiva in Greek. Gehenna meant, quote, Valley of Hinnom and was a dolorous place during the old testament it was a location of child sacrifices to molech a pagan god in the new testament it was where the city dumped its trash after trash began to pile too much the city decided to burn it because there was a constant flow of trash the flames were never really extinguished the billowing smoke and distaste for the location made it a prime spot for disposing of corpses whether from crime sickness or age for those that could not afford a tomb Like landfalls today, it was a spot of scavenging, and the destitutes of the land often pillaged the pile for whatever they could find. With a plethora of rotting corpses not being burned because the fire was not all-consuming, maggots, worms, and other scavenging parasites began to call Gehenna home. In summary, Gehenna was not something referred to in Positivity. There are many people who advocate that Jesus was referring to the literal Gehenna when he spoke, that Gehenna was not a metaphor or allegory for hell. Jeremy Myers even wrote a book about this titled, What is Hell? In his book, he advocates that Hell is not a real place, and because it was a literal location outside the walls of Jerusalem, it should not be translated to Hell from Gehenna. He uses the example of Jerusalem never being translated to City of Peace, or Bethel never being translated to City of God. What Jeremy fails to take into account is that if he does not believe in Hell, it implies he does not believe in Satan. He cannot believe in Satan because the very existence of Satan requires an intensive physical location to quarantine him. But it is clear that Satan, even translated to mean adversary, which still puts the negative value on a single entity, was believed to be a real entity among the followers of Jesus. But in Matthew 16.23, Jesus calls Peter Satan, clearly Jesus did not literally think Peter was Satan, yet he used the metaphor. In both the Old and New Testaments. Jesus and Yahweh actively make cosmic infinite entities, comprehensible for the average individual to understand. Instead of explaining the complexities of the Big Bang and the creation of matter, coupled with cellular reproduction, evolution, and divine installments to create the earth, God authored the Genesis narrative to help articulate cosmic values. The destruction of souls in hell is often referred to as the plight of Sodom and Gomorrah, as seen in Romans 9. Sodom and Gomorrah were real places, yet were used allegorically to help articulate destruction. The stories told of Sodom and Gomorrah were well-known by the Jewish race. Likewise, Gehenna was certainly well-known by the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Gehenna also depicts, at least with worldly attributes, the characteristics of hell. Fire, agony, weeping, rotting, decay, despair, turmoil, and helplessness. The next title is Eschatology of Hell. Subtitle: Process. The eschatological process of hell varies among believers. Technically speaking, there are as many views of the nature and process of hell as one would like, so for the sake of practicality, only the widely regarded and accepted views will be discussed, with a brief section on the subjectivity of hell. Most millennium views hold that Satan will be chained or bonded up during the time of the kingdom, for those that subscribe to a view with a literal kingdom before the eschaton. It is useful to make note of this because it could imply that Satan is not currently bonded, which means his restrictions would look different than modern day. Nearing the end of the millennium, Satan supposedly gets released for one final battle, apparently at the location of Magog. The reasons for releasing Satan for a battle that he's destined to lose, leaves one perplexed, and possibly reading too much into the scripture. But this is a commonly held belief. Satan will lose this battle, potentially taking any false righteous souls with him after the final eschaton is established. After the commencement of the final judgment, the unrighteous will go to the great white throne of judgment, as seen in Revelations 20. Some believe that the judgment before this throne, if not already redeemed in a new glorified body like dispensational premillennialism claims, will be shared among believers and unbelievers alike, as judgment can be a morally good thing, and is by God's definition. After this the unbeliever will go to hell, and the duration will be for eternity, with no apparent alterings of conditions. For the unrighteous that die before the ushering in of the eschaton, there is an intermediate state of hell. This is not to be confused with the heretical doctrine of purgatory, which is a shared space for both believers and unbelievers begging for intercession. The intermediate state of heaven is not very well known, so likewise the intermediate state of hell is even more ambiguous. Unlike Gehenna, Sheol and Hades were most likely not allegorical terms to use for the intermediate hell. Many view these terms as synonyms, But they are used exclusively. Sheol and Hades refer to present hell, or the intermediate state of hell, whereas Gehenna would refer to the final state of hell. The verse that confirms, or at least supports this claim, is Revelation 20, which depicts the final hell consuming Hades and Sheol. After this, the final state of both heaven and hell are enacted, and as far as what has been revealed, eternity will commence. next title is Satan, satan lucifer the devil adversary whatever he is referred to as there are more questions to be asked than answered from scripture god is clearly okay with humanity not knowing much about satan throughout scripture god goes out of his way to highlight the important aspects that humans should note about satan that he is evil the one that tempted eve and that he is bound to hell and that he was able to convince one-third of the angels to join him as seen in Revelation 12 No cardinal numbers are attributed to this event. Michael Horton describes Satan as the most powerful of all the angelic entities. He became engulfed in pride and jealousy and sought to steal the crown of God. He then organized a coup which was, obviously, very quickly silenced. Ephesians 2 verse 2 describe him as, quote, the prince of the power of the air, end quote. Second Corinthians chapter 4 verse 4 describes Satan as the god of this world. Satan is an angel, therefore he is a created being, and not infinite. Satan was not present at the consummation of the universe. He would not be able to recall this event. As the Genesis narrative, literal or mythological, entail, he is witting, cunning, and smart, but not omniscient. The spaceless, timeless, and immaterial aspects of God do not apply to Satan, and the individual must learn to view Satan as restricted. It is confusing to predict, as a finite entity, where Satan currently is. The inherited sinful nature of humans could very much be running its course as the explanation for all evil on Earth, but Scripture does say that Satan is here on Earth. If Satan is present on Earth, one is left speculating on what demonic entity is running Hades or Sheol, or the intermediate state of Hell. Supposedly, one could predict that Satan has given other fallen angels dominion over the present state, but this is mere speculation. There are many paradoxes revolving Satan, If human nature is bent towards sin, and it is the natural state of a human to rebel against God, then what purpose does Satan have? Why would God allow Satan to roam earth if God is actively trying to win souls back to him? And if Satan is so smart and cunning, what gave him the idea that he could overtake the creator of the universe? The fall of Satan is also very confusing because not much is said about it. The Bible is meant to convey the story of God's creation and his plan to restore it, so the omission of the biography of Satan is not a mark against the Bible, but it does leave many scratching their heads trying to piece it all together. Satan can be summarized as the ruler of hell, a finite being who will one day meet his final demise. He is anti-God and seeks to distort the institutions of free-willed humans. Satan has a moral compass, but favors the southern side of it. Scripture warns of his temptations and his attempts to persuade humans, but Scripture provides the escape route, with sanctification and consistent abiding in the Lord. Conclusion Hell has many nuances, and the nuances do not always consistently line up with the laws of logic that humans are governed by. It can be safely postulated that there is no doctrine of hell, or Satan, that fully makes sense of it all. Assuming the deity of Christ, his statements can help clarify a lot of facets about Satan, but scripture still keeps the discourse to a minimum. Christ spoke the most of hell, and therefore saw great value in the warning. The local inhabitants of Jerusalem should not have been fearing the trash dump of Gehenna, but the final hell where eternity would commence. Though hell has nuances, its basic implications align with human logic very well. Infinite sin requires an infinite punishment, and because humans are finite beings, it cannot be infinite in scale. So it has to be set infinite in duration. Hell is a place that is achieved freely, for God judges justly, And takes notice of the capacity of what a human can know humans are judged on a case-by-case basis but the independent variable will always be god's moral compass which will never change hell may very well not be literal fire with a torture chamber and creatures gnashing teeth at their victims but this has been the false advertisement of hell rather hell should be advertised as the loss of relationship with the cosmic author of the universe the rejection from the most good being Hell is physical, and it is safe to assume that there will be pain, anguish, agony, and despair. God is the cosmic helper of the universe, so there will be no help. Hell is avoidable, and the atonement work of Christ gives humans a reason to run to Christ, even if hell did not exist. Christ and the Easter story are the antithesis of hell, the demolition of its value, and the implementation of hope for all who seek to know their creator. God bless. So, um, I understand that that was rather difficult to endure because it is an academic paper. So there is a, I will concede, a, a lot of explaining away on topics that many of y'all may feel does not need explanation. But when writing these, my goal is to explain away to a point where you can have no experience on the subject, yet be able to understand my point almost perfectly, in the end. So, for those of y'all that were able to keep up and learn something, congratulations, and also thank you. Um, I understand that I am 22, and like I said in the intro to this podcast, almost everything I say can be better articulated by an older and more wise individual. But that said... I take a lot of pride in my writings, and I take a lot of pride in my conveying of thoughts on paper. So, again, for those of y'all that were able to extrapolate something useful from that, I appreciate it. For those that could not, I understand. And some closing thoughts on the topic of hell. If there was one concept... That I feel should be emphasized as I depart from y'all this evening it is one that I echoed in the paper no one not a single soul will ever enter the gates of hell and mutter to themselves I do not deserve this that is the one thing I feel should be echoed throughout all of this for all of the people that ask, what about the person on the island who never learned about Jesus? Or what about the Jew in the Holocaust? right? All of these people, though we do not know the final attributes of their habitat, we can all assume that if God is real, right, then he is the author of morality. And any idea that we have of judgment, Any idea that we have of justice, well, these ideas that we have are given by Him. As I stated in the paper, all abstract ideas, math, number theory, philosophy, right, all of these things are authored by God. Now, we may be incorrect on our ideas of morality, but whatever objective morality is out there, the quote, good sides of that morality are defined by nature the characteristics of God. One has to begin to think with the brain that was given to him by God that God is incorrect in some nature. This is just a circular spiral down into insanity if you think about it. So with that said, there have been enough ramblings on hell. Hopefully the next book we cover will be on the lighter side, but this is important. And I hope everyone was able to gain something useful and can overlap this with the idea of thinking heavenly. So let's appreciate what God has given us here as leads to understanding the final heaven, right? Admire the good things and know that they will be amplified in the final heaven. For those of y'all that know the Lord and are destined to heaven, this is the closest to hell you will ever be. Do not set your final resting place on the current conditions of earth. Think heavenly and invest where you'll be the longest. Confront the reality of mortality, and more specifically, of your own. I wanted to close this podcast with a poem called There is no light without a dawning by Helen Rice There is no night without a dawning No winter without a spring And beyond the dark horizon Our hearts will once more sing For those who leave us for a while Have only gone away out of a restless, careworn world into a brighter day. This has been the Veridical Podcast and the Composure of Hell. I will see y'all back next time. Thank you for listening.